This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, session number eight. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey everybody, hope you're having a good day. Thanks for checking in to another session of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Uh, Today I have in store for you a very special episode, and if you're a member of my email list, you already know who's coming up. Uh, For everyone else, however, uh, in today's episode I talk with Dr. Jim Johnston, my major professor from my days in graduate school at Auburn University. Jim's contributions to the field are too great to mention here, but allow me to list just a couple of them before we get going. Uh, First of all, he's uh, apparently pretty good at being the president of things. Uh, For example, he's had presidential positions at our flagship organizations, such as the Association for Behavior Analysis. Uh, This was before it was ABAI. It was just ABA back in the day. Uh, The Behavior Analysis Certification Board and the Association for Professional Behavior Analysts. Uh, As an aside, I was one of Jim's graduate students and had the chance to see him deliver the ABA uh, presidential address, uh, which was pretty cool for uh, being an uh, impressionable 23-year-old kid at the time. So um, in addition to those uh, contributions to the field, uh, he's also well known for his uh, uh, some of the textbooks that he's written. Um, he, uh, along with uh, Hank Pennypacker, is the author of the classic Strategies and Tactics for Behavioral Research. Uh, personally, I own the second edition of it, and I still to this day encounter situations where I uh, pull it off the bookshelf and reference something in it. Uh, in today's interview, we get a sneak peek regarding the development of the fourth edition, which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, Jim is also author of a book that many of you are probably quite familiar with, Radical Behaviorism for ABA Practitioners. Uh, these days, uh, Jim writes some thought-provoking articles on his blog, uh, TalkingAboutBehavior.com. I highly recommend checking it out. You're also likely to see him pop up in ABA Facebook groups, especially when there are questions about rumination, which is a topic that Jim uh, devoted several years of study towards. Long story short, we're real fortunate to have him here as a guest on the podcast. I do want to talk about a couple other things before we get to the interview, however. Uh, first of all, at the time of this recording, there's been almost 19,000 downloads of this podcast. So uh, I am just so grateful to all of you out there who have taken the time to download and listen to the show. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to uh, meet some of you in person at ABAI in Chicago and also have email and Skype and uh, telephone conversations with you. And again, it's a just a real treat. So uh, please keep up the interaction. I love hearing from you. So if you have suggestions for future guests, or if you have contributions to make in terms of uh, questions or follow-up questions, we're going to do a Q&A show here in a little bit. So what we're trying to do is gather some uh, material for that. So if you do have questions about previous topics that we've talked about, uh, feel free to email me at matt at behavioralobservations.com and put Q&A in the subject line. Uh, You can also reach me at behavioralobservations.com and just click the contact tab and that'll uh, prompt you through the steps necessary to get in touch with me. So again, I love the uh, interaction that we're having here and uh, yeah, by all means, keep it up. Don't be shy. 
I also wanted to give a quick shout out to the folks at the ABA Inside Track podcast. Uh, it's perhaps the only other ABA podcast that's out there right now. And uh, they do a pretty fun show where they uh, break down a couple of uh, articles, typically in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, but they've looked at some other articles as well. They've done a couple of interviews with authors uh, of uh, specific articles and things like that. And all in all, it's a, it's a pretty fun show, so I recommend checking them out at uh, abainsidetrack.com. That'll be the uh, clearinghouse that can direct you to where you can find them, depending on whether you're an iTunes person or a uh, Google Play or Stitcher Radio or, or uh, however you want to listen to them. I think you can probably listen to them right from their website as well. So again, that's abainsidetrack.com. Uh, go ahead and give them a listen. If you like what you hear, hop on over to uh, iTunes and give them a review. Um, and then finally, uh, this episode, of course, is sponsored by bside21.org, which, as you know, is an ABA news site that discusses everyday events through a behavior analytic lens. Uh, one article that I'm reading right now is uh, Engaging the Doers, a Menu for Employee Engagement by Manny Rodriguez. So check it out if you have a minute. And I think that's enough for now. So without further ado, please enjoy this fun conversation that I had with Jim Johnston. Hey, Jim. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing fine. Looking forward to this. Um, I know we talked about in our previous conversations, framing up our discussion in the context of the talking about the history of behavior analysis and applied behavior analysis uh, in particular. I know this is something you've written about and presented on numerous times. And so in some respects, it's tempting for me to just say, hey, Jim, take it away. And you could probably talk extemporaneously about this topic uh, for quite some time. But as, as tempting as it might be to do that, I want to kind of frame this uh, discussion up in the context of, of, of your perspective of the development of the field. Um, and so one of my first questions I want to ask is, what was the field like when you were coming up as, say, like an undergraduate student and deciding to go to graduate school and things like that? Can you kind of give us the landscape of what the field of psychology was or behaviorism and, and things like that at that particular point in time? Well, I was uh, an undergraduate from 62 to 66 at the University of Tennessee and took standard psychology major courses. I actually had one course uh, that was behavior analysis, though I wouldn't have recognized it as such at the time. I didn't. Uh, was it called like analysis had, oh, I'm sorry. Was it called like learning or something like that? Or uh, No, that was a separate course. Okay. This was child development, actually. Oh. And uh, it was uh, behaviorally oriented, though not distinguishable to me at that point in my development from anything else. Uh, behavior analysis in the early 60s didn't have much presence, uh, had very little at all outside of psychology and fairly little inside psychology. Uh, now, when I went to graduate school at the University of Florida, 66 to 70, not only did I formally uh, wander into behavior analysis, which is probably a fair description of how it happened, uh, but it was beginning to have more presence and more impact. Of course, you remember in 1968, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis started. Previously, only, only there, there only being JAB, mm -hmm. uh, started in 1958. So 
in a way, my career in behavior analysis developed alongside with the development of applied behavior analysis as a discernible discipline or specialty uh, just by happenstance. Uh, in the early years, things were a lot different than they are now, and it's probably hard for students of today to appreciate this, but the field was very, very small. Mm-hmm. There were very few people who would consider themselves behavioral. The phrase behavior analysis wasn't even particularly common back then. Uh, remember, a journal of applied behavior analysis with that phrase behavior analysis didn't start till 68. So prior to that, it really wasn't particularly known as behavior analysis. It almost didn't have a distinguishable identity or name. And most of the people who were active in, in what was then the field uh, were behavioral psychologists. Uh, they were trained in experimental psychology typically, uh, maybe with a, a little bit of behavioral training and kind of merging into or getting attracted to this new behavioral stuff. Um, And when you went to a convention, there wasn't a track on behavior analysis. Um, There wasn't uh, a focus. Uh, Indeed, the early meetings that could be called behavioral were part of uh, the American Psychological Association uh, regional meetings, such as Southeastern APA meeting, had a number of behavioral people at it in the early years, and you could go there, and we could all fit in one room. So was it kind of like happenstance that these regional centers happened to have some number of people in the Southeast, and it sounds almost accidental in some respects? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's hard to say why people would come to to the SEPA, uh, uh, Southeastern APA. Uh, but there was also Midwestern, where they were having their same kind of experiences in the Northeastern and so forth. But bottom line, it was a very small community of people. It was easy to know everybody. It was easy to know all the literature because there wasn't very much. What there was was quite scattered um, uh, in in a variety of journals and a few early books. Mm-hmm. Um that's why I wanted to have you on the the podcast, Jim, because I, the ideal listener, that is, would be someone who is a practitioner and probably someone who has been certified more uh, recently uh, and things like that. And individuals who may not necessarily have that perspective that you just outlined. So um, I appreciate you kind of laying that out. So one of the things I was reading about in some of the essays that you've written on this was that, uh, and that I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were talking about chapters or stages of development of the field. Um, can you talk about that in terms of, you know, how things have progressed, uh, both in terms of what you just described as the historical context of what we might consider the birth of the field, as well as kind of how things uh, evolved moving forward. Uh, the turning it into chapters or eras is uh, perhaps a pretty uh, uh, individualized perspective. Uh, although I think some things people would generally agree on. Of course, we had our kind of pre 
ABBA period, which was the establishment of the laboratory science, the development of that science, uh, wherein the basics of operant learning were beginning to be really clarified, uh, where our research methods were beginning to be established. Uh, Murray, uh, Murray Sidman's book, Tactics of Scientific Research, was published in 1960. It's the first time anybody had ever uh, identified our, our methods of measurement and so on. Um, and the, the philosophy of science began to take shape, and Skinner wrote more and more about that. The early years for our field, which might be the first chapter for applied behavior analysis, really started in 1949 with a fairly well-known study published by Paul Fuller, who was an Indi University of Indiana graduate student, uh, doing some very basic uh, shaping of movements in a severely profoundly, profoundly intellectually disabled, back then it was called mentally retarded individual. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the first time that, that uh, there was a clear, explicit demonstration that you could take these animal learning principles and do something with human beings. It seems so obvious to us now, but it wasn't obvious then. Nobody had done it before, uh, in, at least in a very clear sort of way. Probably the leading individual in the early years was Ogden Lindsley, uh, one of Skinner's graduate students who developed uh, a laboratory project, semi-laboratory project, at Massachusetts General Hospital with what were then considered backward psychotic individuals. Uh, the field back then was really asking the general question, is this stuff going to work with people? Uh, obvious to us now, but not then. It was a very tentative, a very unsure era. There, were, there was no journal where you could publish this sort of stuff. Remember, JAB didn't start until 1958. Mm -hmm. And then it was about uh, ex very explicitly experimental work. For sure. Uh, there were books like Case Studies in Behavior Modification uh, and uh, Research in Behavior Modification, published by Ullman and Krasner, and the other was Krasner and Ullman, uh, both published in 1965. So prior to 1965, you would have to search random journals almost to find early studies that could be considered behavior analytic. The research style was, was uh, very experimental in flavor, though we were beginning to do that with uh, applied clinical behavior in clinical settings. Uh, there were no training programs back then. The next era I would probably call the era of our emerging identity, starting in 1968 and maybe going as far as late 70s. Uh, this is when uh, people like Sidney Bijou, Mont Wolf, Don Baer, Todd Risley, all from the University of Washington originally, uh, the latter three moving to Kansas, starting the Kansas program. Uh, they were not Skinner students. They were out of, uh, they were trained by Sidney Bijou. Uh, so it's interesting to wonder if some of Skinner's students had been in the place to start the first uh, applied behavior analysis sort of program or starting JABA, uh, how things might have been different. Interesting to wonder that. Mm -hmm. There was then, though, a beginning of a sense of a new field. 
and the, the journal kind of certified that. There was a certain bravado uh, bordering on arrogance about our, our newly developed muscle that we could, we could change human behavior. We could, we could apply these operant learning principles and really do stuff that nobody else was doing. You, you know, Jim, I was uh, talking with, uh, I interviewed John Bailey a few weeks ago, and he was saying the same thing. He said it was a, 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 um, a real heady time, um, and that the, the, uh, the early practitioners felt like they were on the, you know, kind of cutting edge or the vanguard, if you will, of, of, of this, this new technology. So I can only imagine it must have been, you know, pretty... Uh, uh, a pretty interesting time to be um, uh, witnessing, I guess. I'm not sure how many friends we made. We were kind of arrogant, I suppose. It was the kind of thing where you, you would say, just tell me the target behavior and get out of the way. I see. Because I'm going to change it. <laughs> and, and we kind of didn't know what we didn't know. Uh, there were emerging training centers during this, this uh, period, uh, not only University of Kansas, but certainly Western Michigan University and others. There were more doctoral than master's programs. Training was largely doctoral. There were very few master's programs. You know, that was, uh, there was, there was that, no concept of an ABA curriculum. There was training in this field, behavioral psychology, but there wasn't any notion of everybody should have this or everybody should have that. You know, uh, there that, was... Go oh, ahead. If I just met, yeah, you know, it, it, what's interesting is that that seemed to be my, um, when you said it's uh, more doctoral versus master's programs, that seemed to be my experience as well. And, and I obviously, you know, came, came along later. Um, but I think I, it was 1996 when I left the University of New Hampshire. And I remember looking for programs for applied behavior analysis. And it was obviously, uh, uh, having worked with you at Auburn, I, I, that's where I landed, but it was Auburn. Western Michigan, West Virginia, uh, at the time. Florida. And, and, uh, yeah, there was a handful of things, you know, it, it was really, really a short list. And, and like you said, they were, they were PhD, you know, experimental psych programs, essentially not, not you know, remotely close to where things stand right now. So anyway, I interrupted you, please go. go. Well, in this emerging identity era, there was also a growing applied literature and it wasn't just Java, although Java had a big impact. But there were more people doing this applied research. It had a sense of uh, shape to it. Uh, the techniques back then were very unsophisticated. Uh, they were really about powerful consequences, uh, powerful reinforcers and powerful punishers. Nothing wrong with either one, but they were pretty unsophisticated techniques. It was really about arranging powerful consequences for uh, target behaviors and depending on that to reach clinical objectives. I think then uh, the next era might be one in which we were confronting some limitations, uh, maybe 1980 through the early 90s. Uh, the signal feature of this era was the aversives controversy. Our bravado and our dependence on powerful consequences, particularly aversive consequences in the context of punishment procedures caught up with us. And uh, other people uh, on the fringes of the field and outside the field begin to take issue with our use of aversive consequences and dependence on punishment procedures 
Then as now, we often got tasked with getting rid of problem behavior, and so you'd be interested in decreasing the frequency of problem behavior, and you would turn to punishment procedures. And uh, there began to be a controversy about the appropriateness of using aversive consequences, and this began to take on uh, uh, not so much technical features, but political features and philosophical and values-based characteristics, mm -hmm. and it began to be a very large controversy. Uh, there were fights between organizations, uh, one organization taking policy and uh, political positions against another, uh, and the early uh, Midwestern Association of Behavior Analysis, which became the Association of Behavior Analysis, uh, began to take policy positions like the right to effective treatment, which was our defense uh, in this fight. Uh, it went on for some years. Uh, bad things came out of it, but good things came out of it. Uh, one was the development of a different clinical model, uh, a clinical model that began to depend more on understanding why the target behavior existed, where it came from, what the variables were that were maintaining the target behavior and using that kind of information uh, to craft a clinical approach. Uh, this is routine now, but there was a point at which it was not routine. Mm -hmm. And the idea of discovering the function served by a problem behavior, although that was always part of who we were, the notion of the functional uh, relation between behavior and environment, went way, way back in, in the early experimental history, but it turned into a clinical treatment approach, which we now call functional assessment, and more narrowly, the functional assessment uh, procedures that Awada and others developed began to change how we looked at our approach to treatment. At the same time, our technology was growing more complex, uh, which was a good thing. We were mm -hmm. discovering more about behavior, more about procedures, more techniques, and so forth. Um, if we move on, we move into a different era, one which uh, listeners might more readily understand, and that's the demand for autism services. Uh, this era really started in 1993 when Catherine Maurice published her book, Let Me Hear Your Voice. And it seems like almost overnight, uh, the autism parent community, which was a very active and viable community even then, Absolutely. Uh, turned to behavior analysis. It kind of discovered applied behavior analysis almost overnight. And uh, this uh, was a very big impact. It uh, caused a shift in the focus of our services from developmental disabilities in general particularly intellectual disabilities, then still called mental retardation, uh, to autism services. And many people working in the field of mental retardation literally changed jobs and went to work uh, beginning to offer autism services. Uh, and uh, then many things happened to develop applied behavior analysis as an autism-focused uh, uh, applied uh, practitioner community. Uh, the technology of autism treatment developed as well. 
focusing particularly on uh, verbal behavior as an obvious clinical instructional need, one which we had not felt much demand for uh, in the area of mental retardation. Uh, so there was uh, really an enormous change in the early to mid-90s as the field began to turn to focus on the needs of the autism community. And one of the reasons for this is that it was a very big and viable community with a great demand for uh, clinical treatment and a demand which began slowly to gather more and more a financial foundation. Of course, so this yeah. had to be where the jobs were and where the money was. Uh, not that they weren't in mental retardation, but this really appealed to a lot of people, and particularly the people who were newly coming into the field, and the appeal of working with young children who appeared normal but weren't for reasons that no one understood, we still don't fully understand, uh, this was very appealing to the people who were coming into the field at that point and was part of the shift. Yeah, I think it's important to kind of underscore um, that era uh, because I, I it, it, it's important to remind folks that there was that, um, you know, kind of shift in service model and, and, and to tell the story that, you know, kind of like not, not much like we were just talking about with the, you know, kind of limited training centers that there were for practitioners, but also, you know, like when I left graduate school, it, it was, uh, the jobs that were out there were things like working for, uh, residential, uh, treatment facilities, you know, such, um, you know, I, I happen to work for AdvoServe, um, but there's the May Center and things like that. You know, there are there are a, a short list of places to to go do this type of work as well, and that's, I think, a perspective that's uh, probably difficult to wrap your mind around if you're just kind of coming into the field where, you know, now school districts are hiring for BCBAs, and you know, um, as, as well as um, you know, established uh, center-based uh, treatment um, uh, practices and so forth. So. You know, just that kind of shift in, as you say, you know, working primarily with a cognitively impaired or intellectually, you know, disabled community to the uh, spectrum community, also working primarily from a uh, standpoint of reducing challenging behaviors to uh, uh, shifting the focus on an instructional, a pa very powerful instructional technology. It, you know, um, it's important to kind of. Uh, note those differences and how the field's grown, even in the last, you know, say 15 years or so. Well, in fact, it's these last 15 years, and really turning to the next chapter, if you will, the emergence of credentialing. Mm -hmm. uh, credentialing started in Florida, but uh, went national in 1998, uh, really 2000, the first uh, test was given uh, by the national uh, uh, credentialing body, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, and uh, <coughs> it uh, it really had an enormous impact. I think easily the biggest impact of any event in the history of applied behavior analysis was the development of credentialing. We knew it had to happen. The demand for autism services 
created a scenario in which everybody and their brother quickly volunteered that they were expert in ABA mm-hmm. and that they could provide these services. Right. Uh, and, and in fact, most people weren't and had no background at all, but the financial contingencies encouraged a lot of people to hold up their hand and say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an expert in that, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And, so there, and, and there was no way for people who weren't expert to make the discrimination between who really is trained in this field and who isn't, and began to be a rather serious problem. And it was our name, our good name, that was being abused by these, these hangers-on who, who wanted to make a, a quick buck. And so we really, the credentialing era had to happen. Um, and uh, I was very much a part of that, going way back to the early, early years in Florida, and then working with Jerry as the first president of the, Jerry Shook, uh, as the first president of the BACB, Jerry was the executive director, of course, and uh, for the next seven years, helped develop uh, the credentialing model. The early years, uh, it was uh, uh, complex but simple compared to where it is today. For instance, we didn't have supervision requirements because we didn't have anybody out there to be supervisors. Right. You got to have supervisors first, uh, and even when we had a supervision requirement, we didn't have criteria for being a supervisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have supervision. Uh, we didn't have a lot of things back then. So you put one foot in front of another, grit your teeth about what you can't yet do, and keep marching forward. And more capability becomes possible uh, as the number of certificates grows, and as we get uh, standards for the first time in the field. Standards for training and testing. Mm-hmm. The very first time in our history of our field, there were standards national standards, international standards. And then we began to see the impact of a credential on employers, on regulations, on statutes, people beginning to use the credential in these arenas to hire people to set standards in uh, legislative law, in uh, statutory law. Uh, The insurance movement began to get rolling. Uh, Once there was a credential, then the insurance industry could be interested in using that credential to as a means for offering services and discriminating between who is eligible to offer services that it's going to pay for and who is not. Uh, really, the emergence of credentialing for the first time gave us a professional identity. We had an identity previous to that, but it was really more uh, an academic sort of identity here, for the first time, we had a professional identity. We really were a profession mm-hmm. in the traditional sense of the phrase as it would be offered by other professions. Got it. So, very, very important era in our field. Uh, leading into the era I think we're in now, which is an era of professional development. Once we're a profession, then there's a lot of work to be done about how to be a good profession, a proper profession. For instance, all of a sudden we've got a growing cadre of practitioners, credential practitioners, and they have needs. There are things that they need organizations to do for them that they can individually do for themselves. Uh, Public policy begins to be a major issue. There are public policy issues, occasionally national but typically state level, public policy issues 
that somebody has got to take responsibility for. Mm -hmm. The licensure movement uh, started, and that's a state-by-state -state movement by definition, since it depends on state law, state statutes, uh, and that's another public policy arena. Uh, and uh, all of this ultimately led to the formation for the first time of an organization solely devoted to practitioners. Most fields with a practitioner component have an organization like this. Uh, this is, in our case, the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts, whose sole function is to meet the needs of practitioners. Uh, we've had all along the Association of Behavior Analysis, uh, then Association of Behavior Analysis International, which is a broader sort of organization, one that accommodates uh, scientific interests, uh, has practitioner interests as well, but not as a primary focus, uh, as it is for the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts. I see. Um, so you, you, you uh, kind of guessed that one of my questions would be to kind of draw the distinctions between those two organizations, given that you know, you've had leadership roles in both. Um, um, one of the things... Um, one of the things I, I often think about, you know, as we're in this phase of professional development, as this field is kind of getting a, a you know, a, an ever increasingly bigger footprint, um, is I sometimes worry, are we, even though there's such a demand for BCBAs, I mean, I can't tell you how many emails I get in a week, you know, of this organization and that organization looking for, for, for um, you know, um, practitioners and so forth. Um, but I, you know, despite the, that need, I wonder if we are growing too quickly at times, you know, um, do you, do you, what's your sense of that? Do you have an opinion on that in terms of, um, are well, we kind of, you know, driving faster and then our headlights can see at night, you know, or to, to use I know, think, a motoring analogy? Yeah. I mean, that's not a bad analogy. I, uh, you don't get to control it. Uh, nobody does. Uh, if you look at the history I've described and, I look back on my career going through all of these kind of phases or chapters in the field's evolution, at no point would anybody feel like they're in control. Okay. Um, and so you can, you can second guess with that kind of question. Uh, in one sense, we're not big enough. Uh, there's never been sufficient, uh, well-trained, credentialed, ABA practitioners to meet the demand for services. And I think everybody in the field today realizes the demand far outstrips the supply of practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, even though we're the, the distribution of practitioners over time is still positively accelerating, which is really quite surprising. If you look back to the beginning of the BACB and look at that graph uh, of our growth, it's still positively accelerated uh, with almost 600 or so approved course sequences in the world. Maybe that's not surprising, and I don't think all of them are by any means up to snuff or up to full operation. Uh, so it's easy to extrapolate. We have maybe, maybe 20,000 or so credentialed uh, BCBAs and BCABAs at this point. In 10 more years, that number is likely to come close to doubling. Wow. And even then, we're not going to have enough. Now, it's easy 
to step back and say, but, but we're not ready for prime time. Mm -hmm. uh, in one sense, we are. In one sense, we're not. If you look at the pass rates of approved course sequences that the BACB is now making public each year, you can see that programs are still developing and learning how to be good programs, how to offer better courses, how to have better instructors, how to set higher standards so that a greater proportion of the students that enter into a program will uh, graduate from the program and be able to pass the national uh, certification exam, which is, which is a challenging examination. You've got to do no more than just a few definitions to get, get through that. Uh, so if you look at the pass rate data, you could say, you know, our programs are not where they need to be yet. And it's true. Uh, there's so much more, I'm sure, that the BACB plans on doing in raising the standards of the field, which have been raised repeatedly over the last 15 years or more. Mm -hmm. And yet we know at the same time these standards need to be higher. So are we going too fast? In one sense, no. We're not, because we're still not meeting the demand. Um, on the other hand, we're growing faster than we're able to keep up with if we could grow according to a very conservative high set of standards. We're probably not meeting our own standards, uh, which uh, tells us where we need to look to improve uh, the quality of our graduates. Um, I've done a lot of consulting, particularly in the area of intellectual disabilities, over the last 30 years, and I get to see the quality of work in the field, uh, on the ground, on the floor, so to speak. And it's kind of never near the state of the art. Mm -hmm. And I know where the state of the art is, and I rarely see it. Right. On the other hand, I see our technology improving all the time. Uh, so there is this push-pull uh, always going on between where we are and where we would like to be. And the key is that we recognize just because we're growing quickly as a field does not mean we are meeting our own standards. Um, and I hope our standards are higher than anybody else's. It's a challenge. It's frustrating on the one hand. At the same time, it's gratifying to see the field being uh, appealing to people who want to come get training in the field and go out and make this their career. Mm -hmm. uh, it's appealing to see that we can draw in all of these people and make them uh, uh, a member of this uh, really fascinating discipline. Interesting. So you seem kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to, again, I don't want to, Put words in your mouth, but you seem kind of sanguine about it in some respects. That you know, or accepting, if you will, you know, it, it kind of is what it is, and um, these challenges Actually, exist. And let me interrupt. I I find it very frustrating, uh -huh. but uh, that that's not a helpful emotion. Of course. Uh, so what do you do? Well, you take your personal responsibility to do everything you can to improve the field. And when I do talks at uh, 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 state chapter conventions and so forth. This is one of the, the themes I keep coming back to. We are each responsible for the field. Mm -hmm. Your reputation is my reputation and vice versa. Okay. If there's somebody out there behaving in a way that doesn't meet your personal standards 
it's your reputation that they're affecting. Right. And so we're all equally responsible for our very young and, and in some ways still immature profession. And we all have to do whatever we find ourselves in a, in a situation to do to improve, whether it's making sure we go to the national meetings, go to conventions, improve our, our, own, our own skills, uh, making sure that we uh, go talk with a Rotary Club and tell them about our field and what it's doing and what it's supposed to do to, to really make it to inform the public about our discipline. Uh, to report uh, to the BACB uh, unethical behavior, mm -hmm. which is something that is still very challenging for our, our young field as we're learning how to be a profession. So I find it very frustrating, but that's not helpful by itself. You kind of have to dig in and, and do the best you can. Okay, I appreciate that clarification. Um, um, one uh, one question, kind of, it's, it's related. I, I want to pivot to a little bit, though, is, and of course, this is all kind of crystal ball stuff. But looking back on what we know now, um, and I, memory serves. I think you've written a little bit about this. What um, what, what do you see, perhaps, as some of the missed opportunities the field has had? Um, uh, am I, I? I think there was an essay you wrote not too long ago about that. Um, can you talk about that for a minute? Well, it's. It's a kind of a pet topic of mine. I, I uh, have always tried to stand back a bit from the field and look at it from afar uh, and say, okay, what's going on here? What's happening? And where should it go? I was on the executive council for ABAI back in the mid-'80s and uh, for the first time and, and wanted to and tried to get a, a self-study of the discipline off the ground. It kind of did and kind of didn't get off the ground and ultimately didn't go anywhere. And some years later in the 90s when I had my turn as president, I tried to the same uh, initiative. And it's, it's difficult because it's a multi-year venture. But all along, I felt like we haven't done as good a job as we could have at managing our own behavior. Uh, this is, after all, our thing, right? Of course, yeah. We're supposed to be pretty good at managing behavior you'd think we'd be pretty good at managing our own data. <laughs> Turns out we're not so hot at that. Well, yeah, those uh, of us who are parents as well know that pretty, uh, pretty, pretty uh, intimately. Yeah, we've, we've, really, uh, we've really not done, I think, as good a job as we could have all along at stepping back a bit and saying, okay, what's going on here? What could we do? What's going to happen in the future? What's around the corner? Uh, what should we do to make the field better? We've kind of lived our, our history day by day, but we haven't managed our history. Uh, and there are many, many signs of this. Uh, I think in the fact that uh, APBA uh, was formed as a separate organization from ABAI was a step that in retrospect and even at the time didn't need to happen. It could have stayed one organization. There were a lot of issues. I don't want to get into political sorts of issues, but I, I was made a, quite an effort at the time to make this one organization and so forth. Now, in many fields, it's not. Uh, there are different organizations grow up and develop as a field gets more complex 
and larger, various special interests are represented by special interest organizations. And that's part of the development of the field. And so maybe this was inevitable. But uh, I really think we could have stepped back, as other disciplines do, uh, and do a self-study. Chemistry is a well-developed, mature science. And yet, every so many years, the field of chemistry steps back and does a major self-study, in which they look at where is the field, what kind of people are we producing, uh, uh, are we producing specialists, enough specialists in the right areas, uh, what could we be doing better, what do we need to look out for in the future. These are major uh, expensive self-studies that the government uses to guide its support for a discipline and we've really never done something like that. Uh, and I think, I think we need to. Okay. Um, one, um, I do want to switch gears a little bit. And I know we're uh, um, maybe a little tight on time. Do you have a few minutes to talk about um, the uh, fourth edition of um, uh, Strategies and Tactics? Well, I'm always happy to talk about that. It, it amazes me to this day that it was first published in 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's in its third edition. We've not been too hasty in doing new editions. And each edition has been a major rewrite of the previous edition. In the third edition, we published in 1993, we recognized that uh, we really needed to better accommodate the interest of practitioners. Yeah, that was and, the edition that I was uh, first exposed to, and I still have the green book with all the uh, <laughs> underlines made uh, back in the day. So, yeah. Well, that was that was the second edition. There's a third yeah. edition, which I, was uh, kind of a, a buff, a yellow sort of color. And that one, we really uh, took that edition as far as we could in making it uh, accommodate some practitioner interests. But as the practitioner community the applied community has continued to grow, and as the marketplace for textbooks in behavior analysis has evolved, we've realized that uh, not only we need a new edition, but we need a, another major rewrite. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are discussing uh, we, with our uh, publisher uh, at the moment. We have it all planned at this point. We're ready to start. Uh, and uh, it will be a complete major rewrite. The themes, the core themes will remain the same, but we will add some chapters, which we have never done before, uh, and we will, uh, we may even drop a chapter or two or merge a chapter. We will subdivide some chapters. We will change the style of the book, uh, the literary style of the book, so that it's a, a much easier read, uh, kind of a friendlier, more informal sort of uh, style of writing, mm -hmm. uh, more like, in a way, the uh, Radical Be Behaviorism for ABA Practitioners book that I published a year ago, uh, which is a more distinctively casual, informal, narrative, storytelling sort of style. Uh, we uh, will uh, do quite a number of things that will appeal to the changing demographic in the marketplace for textbooks in our field these days. Uh, this is certainly a book, will be a book for uh, terminal master's programs, 
which is where the market is right now. Yeah. Uh, and most importantly, we are adding a third author. Not to say that Hank Pennypacker and I are getting older, oh, come but uh, we are adding uh, a third author who is was really the only person we can think of adding as an author, and that's Dr. Gina Green. Uh, Gina is an expert in research methods, has published experimental studies in this area. Uh, she is obviously as the executive director of the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts, uh, very much involved her entire career with the practitioner community. And to boot, she is a superb writer, uh, better than Hank and I put together probably. And uh, so she will keep us on the straight and narrow when it comes to simple declarative sentences. Uh, and will be an author that is able to continue the book uh, and continue its longevity as Hank and I uh, uh, get into more of the twilight of our careers, I guess you could say, though I hasten to add I'm not there yet. Okay, well, you know, uh, I think if you recall, uh, a lot of us uh, graduate students in your lab used to have fun with uh, counting the word length of sentences, and um, particularly in the first edition. Uh, so to have a little uh, uh, a, a little help in that area um, is probably not a bad thing. Not to say that the others weren't readable, of course. Uh, no, so I, I fully understand. Complex I, compound I sentences. The, <laughs> I pick up the third edition and occasionally read a piece of it, and I... When I have to read a sentence a couple of times to understand what I was writing, I know something's wrong. I see. I see. Uh, so we'll be uh, we will be changing literary style. Um, great, great. Um, well, it sounds exciting. And and what I'd like to do is um, um, I know you predicting the publishing world is probably um, a really difficult thing to do. Um, but when you have an idea of when it's coming out, perhaps you can come back and talk a little bit more about it um, as it gets close. Do you have an idea of when it might be published? Uh, it's hard to say. It's going to take more than a year to do a major rewrite like this. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, and then there's the publication lag itself. So it'd be at least a year and a half or more, uh, I suspect, before it's available for purchase. Uh, it is a little hard to say, um, but uh, yeah, it'll, it'll take a while to do the job right. Okay, okay. Um, well, final question, Jim. Um, is there a kind of one piece of advice, you know, given what you just described, you, you know, you presented, presented a nice overview of the field from a historical and personal perspective. Um, imagine that, um, imagine that you we're talking to uh, someone in the Auburn University uh, terminal master's program, and they were, you know, say, uh, oh, I don't know, 24 years old. They're getting their BCBA. Um, they're about to, you know, get their first job. Do you, do you have advice for someone at that, you know, uh, level of their career, given given the context of what you just kind of laid out here? Well, that's an easy question in a way because I, I did that for years, uh, in starting and running the, uh, the master's uh, program at uh, Auburn, uh, and uh, it's a it's a an admonition, an encouragement, if you will, that uh, they heard not at at the end of the year, but throughout the year, which was that it's important to understand that they have an obligation to the profession, 
uh, from day one to continue their development. Um, imagine if you're starting out now, do you think the field is going to be the same 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, or if you're like me, 40 years from now? Right. Uh, the field is going to change a lot. And if you stay where you are, you're going to be way out of date. Mm-hmm. Uh, in even 10 years, certainly in 20 years. Uh, so you have an obligation to the field, not just to yourself, not just to your uh, clients, to the people you serve or paying you for services. You have an obligation to the discipline to make it better, to improve it in whatever way your circumstances uh, prevent the opportunity to do. Uh, at the least, this means you need to keep learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the area, for instance, of radical behaviorism, uh, this is an area that you don't casually pick up by reading uh, even our, our very good book. You have to think about it and worry about it and study on it and practice it with your colleagues. You need to have colleagues that you are peers with and use them to help ratchet up your own standards. Yeah. It's not a solo career. Your career needs to be one that's part of a community, and you need to use that community to set continually higher standards by going to state chapter meetings, going to national conventions, making your continuing education hours meaningful, uh, getting the most out of them, taking it as an obligation to read a paper, to read journals, and to get better and make our field improve over the years. Okay, well said. Um, great. Well, I think that pretty much uh, gets at most of what, what I wanted to cover today. Jim, thanks a lot for spending some time with us. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I'll, I'll look forward to another. All right, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. What a way to end a fun conversation with some uh, sage advice. So uh, thank you, Jim, for uh, providing that reminder to stay current with the literature and field in general and things like that. You know, it's kind of like uh, eating, right, and exercising. You know, those are things that we consider as, you know, almost common sense. But in practice, it's really hard to do, especially when life gets uh, very busy and things like that. So, again, it's a great reminder of our obligation as behavior analysts to stay current with the science. So, having said all that, I really hope you enjoyed this discussion with Jim. Uh, If you want to see... Uh, his writings or any of his essays that he posts generally about on a monthly basis, you can check out his website at talkingaboutbehavior.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, and if you haven't done it already, head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. It really helps the podcast uh, stand out amongst all the others that are out there. So uh, until the next time, thank you so much for joining me for another session of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.